Hello, and welcome to a roundtable discussion on the Topic of Page podcast. My name is John Mayer. In this episode, I'm joined by guests for a lively conversation on a topic we hope you'll find interesting. In this roundtable discussion, I am joined by my sister Kay Kellum, and we're going to have a spoiler-filled discussion around the My Favorite Martian TV show from 1963 to 66. Yeah. It starred Ray Walston and Bill Bixby, and it's one that I would say is a definitely classic TV series. I was going to say classic is almost an understatement. They've just released the whole thing on uh, on DVD, mm-hmm. which is uh, what we're going to be talking about here. And it's uh, won three seasons. First one had, what, 39 episodes, then 36 or so, and 32 or something. All of them were well over 30. Yeah, it told out to about 107 episodes. For the third season, they were in color, and the first two, they were in black and white. Uh, First two seasons were at Desilu, and then I think it was MGM for the other one. Oh, I forgot. They switched studios. Yeah. And not only did they go to color and change up a little what the, the Martian could do, but the apartment changed a little too. Not drastically, but it used to be in the bedroom. Um, there was the door, Tim's bed, and above that was a window, and it became a wall in the third season and stuff. So minor little things. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, this is, again, just a classic uh, of, of kind of television history and stuff. I'm, I'm glad they've got the full set out on DVD. Well, and it's another one of those shows that I go to IMDb and I look at the dates and I say, Really? That's not a show that was airing during my childhood as new episodes? I was watching reruns? I had no idea because it was such a part of my childhood. Well, that's something that younger listeners might not understand. We being not so young. <laughs> yeah, uh, true. But younger listeners are have grown up in the era where the afternoon hours are filled with talk shows with, uh, actually, I'm not really sure what, because I work these days. But Reruns we- of Law & Order. Um, but yeah, mostly, I would agree, talk shows and game shows. But when we were growing up, not only did you have those afternoon hours that had Gilligan's Island, I Love Lucy, all that kind of stuff, you had the Saturday stuff. Mm-hmm. So you'd get done with your Saturday morning cartoons, and when when we were growing up, it would be like a Tarzan movie or two, uh, then it would be like F Troop, Gilligan's Island, you know, classics from this era of television. Because Gilligan's Island was running um, more or less concurrently with this. Yeah, and that was another thing that surprised me. Uh, the script supervisor for the first season was Sherwood Schwartz, and he left to do Gilligan's Island. And he knew going in he, that was going to happen. Well, and the first time I saw his name pop up on the screen, it was a, thank God I have a computer nearby and I can immediately Google and confirm, I know this guy created another show, found not only the Gilligan's Island reference, but the fact that when he went to L.A., he went for college, not to get into the business, mm-hmm. had a brother who was writing jokes for a comedian, and he needed money. So his brother said, well, if you write some jokes and the comedian likes him, he'll buy them and, you know, that might help you out. So he wrote for this, you know, at the time, much less known than he is now, guy named Bob Hope. Uh, And 
that just kind of triggered a career. I was going through YouTube and had stumbled across uh, Sherwood Schwartz being the story editor for this, and some of the other clips were him talking about Bob Hope, Gilligan's Island. And Gilligan's Island I got, and I'm like, why Bob Hope? Yeah. Now I get it. That's where his career began. The uh, the segment I saw, though, was very interesting on how he was brought in after the pilot had been sold, how it was just a brilliant pilot, and it is, but then how the direction they were headed was more along focusing on Tim, the, mm. the human nephew. He's having girl troubles. He's having this whatever. And the Martian would help out a little here and there. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, no, you promised this, you know, with the, the, the show. The the premise of the show was following the Martian. He flat out says at the end, your life's going to have a lot of problems. I'm going to get you in trouble a lot, but it won't be boring. Yeah. You know, and he had to retool quite a few of the scripts to get them into the vein of what he thought the show should be. Well, another situation where I found myself hitting Google and saying, okay, either I'm being an inattentive viewer or something happened between the pilot and moving forward that I'm just not following is the landlady, Mrs. Brown, mm-hmm. who I adore. She's great. And then in the pilot, there are the two girls. Yes, her daughter and I guess her Her niece, niece. apparently. But I didn't get a clear idea of were they both her daughters, was one a daughter or a niece, etc. And then I watched almost the entire first season before I started realizing, oh, wow, we're recording soon. I should cherry pick episodes because I want to see more of this. Um, But then the daughter seems to, I almost want to say, de-age and get younger and then disappears. About a dozen or so episodes, and I think the pilot was the only one I saw the daughter in. Yeah, she disappeared for me. I early in the first season, she seemed to disappear, and then there was a point at which Miss um, Brown was taking a private investigation class. Did mm-hmm. you watch that episode? No, I didn't watch that episode. No. Oh, it was a fun one because she's taking this correspondence course and how to be a PI. And the uh, lesson is investigate someone you know well, perhaps one of your neighbors. I know she goes and investigates Uncle Martin. Martin. Yeah. I, I read through the descriptions and uh, kind of cherry. That's how I picked the, the 12 I or was going to watch. I mean, 107 episodes, uh, 25 plus minutes a piece. I had to cherry pick. Yes, definitely. Well, it's hilarious because she goes to the apartment to uh, get his fingerprints, but we've established when he went for a driver's license that he has no fingerprints mm-hmm. and stuff. And at the end of the episode, Martin hasn't just decided to turn her off from this whole being a PI thing. But he's thought about why is she doing this? And she's already had an episode where she tried selling insurance Mm -hmm. and various things. And he thinks about it and he sits her down. And it was a really great scene because they started with him telling Tim what was going on and cut in the middle of his talk to him actually saying it directly to Mrs. Brown. But he's saying, you know, you may feel like you're lonely. And you have nothing to offer, but you're entirely wrong. You have your time and your time is incredibly valuable to people who need the time you have to give. Mm -hmm. And he just gives her this incredibly well thought out pep talk about all she has to offer. And he says, you know, you're a widow. You don't need to be earning money. So don't go looking for a dangerous job to earn money. 
look for ways you can contribute to your community. Well, it's the the crux of the show centers around Martin being a, a Martian anthropologist trying to who's who's been studying Earth for for centuries and has this grasp of how people are, how they act, mm-hmm. yet at times being completely you know, perplexed by it too. Well, and he has established that Martians are not sentimental. Mm-hmm. And it comes across that he has never allowed himself to emotionally attach to any of the people he's met. I mean, he talks about having met Lincoln, about having met uh, Van Gogh and various famous Twain, artists. various people, yeah. You know, but when it comes down to, and especially in season one, he has lots of opportunities to try and fix the spacecraft, to try and hitchhike on rockets, this, I, that, and the other. I will say out of the 12 I watched, and part of this is how I cherry-picked or whatever, it seemed like almost everyone he was either on, on, about to get on a rocket to go home or having to clean up something from one of his previous visits. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, but yeah, every time he had almost had that chance to go home... He realized how much he would miss Tim, how much Tim would miss him, mm-hmm. and that this was the first time he'd really created that bond and understood family. Well, one of the ones I watched was when he had an opportunity to go back and by hitchhiking on a rocket, because apparently we had rockets galore back then. And we kept sending them to Mars, although we did consider Venus, but you know, thankfully luck was on Martin's side and Mars won. But the one I saw, or one of the many I saw, uh, he splits into three versions of himself. So he could talk through the problem face to face. Yes. And he had two very decisive sides, one yay, one nay, and then one who was just wishy-washy about everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's a sitcom, and it's like, okay, they decide that they're going to drive to the rocket because they've only got an hour left. They've, they'll talk it out in the car. And Tim's like, I can't take three of you down in the car. Somebody will notice. Yes. Well, you could take three large pieces of luggage. There's nothing odd about that. Yes. So he winds up doing that. And, you know, you get the whole physical comedy aspect of, you know, a suitcase the size of a person kind of a deal. Somebody thinks he's killed Martin. And it's not the first episode where he gets accused of killing Martin. That happens more than once. Yeah. But just the whole wackiness ensues aspect is is a key part of the show. But what makes the show work is both Tim and Martin are likable guys. They are definitely, and they've they they develop a really good relationship between them, where they can kind of lean on each other, kind of push each other a little bit here and there. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the ones I saw that I really liked was. Actually, I watched a couple where the uh, the CCTB or whatever it was, the time travel box. Yeah. Um, the cathode ray time breakoscope or something. Yeah, I liked the breakoscope part of the name. CCTBS. What was the S for? Scope. Oh, scope. Got it. Because uh, they use that to travel back in time, uh, prevent the sale of, well, actually the final episode. <laughs> Prevent the sale of Manhattan. Now, say that correctly, they unprevent the sale. Well, Tim accidentally goes back, prevents the sale. Then they have to go back and unprevent the sale. There you go. Uh, and it's one of those where the the Martian technology just always causes problems. Yes. You know, there was one episode where Tim was having lunch, missed 
a huge robbery that was happening across the street. One of the many zillions of times he was gotten busted down to the obituary column. <laughs> I know, right? And uses the the time broscope thing to go back to go watch the thing, and then gets basically accused of the the robbery. Yeah, and you know the the shenanigans they've got to do to make some of this happen is is hilarious. But these are also episodes that in the 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 YouTube video I watched, uh, Sherwood George was saying he never would have let go through. Because the premise of the show isn't time travel. Exactly. I agree with it's that. It's fish out of water. Yeah. Well, and the first time travel one that I watched, which I'm not sure was in the ones we had cherry-picked, um, Martin is working on the time break scope. He's creating it. And his plan is to go back to before the accident mm -hmm. and basically prevent himself from crashing. And because uh, Tim has no idea what this thing is or he how it resets. works. That's one of the ones I watched. Okay. And that's the Magna Carta one. Yes. You know, and that one I liked and I, I understood why that one went through in a way because in one of the interviews that was in one of the bonus features, uh, Ray Walston was saying that he was very concerned when he was first given the script. Mm -hmm. And, you know, should he take the role? Should he not take the role? What kind of part was it going to be? Would it be too similar uh, personality-wise to other characters he'd played? And he talked with sort of the powers that be on the show. And they said, look, we want a show that is going to have some good morals mm -hmm. and is going to put, I almost want to say, like some good karma out there for the kids. And he said, you know, I really thought about that. And I thought, you know, there are so much horror movies out there and so many be scared of aliens when they land movies out there. And I thought, if we could put something good for the kids out there, I want to be part of that. And I wonder if that isn't part of why the show ended. Well, from from I think one of the emails you were saying uh, sent me or whatever. At the end, he was wanting to not be in every episode. Well, and, and I think was just a little disenfranchised, disenchanted with the way the show was going. Yeah, and I think part of that was on your standard sitcom, okay, you're going to have your table reads, your rehearsals, and filming. So if you're doing another project at the same time, like some actresses are doing talk shows as well mm -hmm. as a sitcom, you can technically get away with only being on the sitcom three days a week. Mm -hmm. It's a hard schedule. You're working hard those three days, but bare minimums, three days a week. For My Favorite Martian, from what I read, because of all the special effects they were doing... The trick photography, yeah. They were filming five days a week. There was no do a table read tomorrow, or today, rehearse it tomorrow, film it the day after. Every single day, they had to get some film in the can. Well, speaking on the, the special effects side of that, um, but I want to get back to why mm -hmm. the show ended. But on the special effects side, um, I thought... I mean, like in the pilot, when he's, you know, using the finger to, to levitate the ship into the garage, you can see the wires and stuff. Mm. I mean, to me, that's a given. This is 1963. It's not going to be flawless. Well, but you got to look for the wires. I was going to say, because it's 1963, et cetera, I kind of made a point of not looking for stuff like that. My, I My point is, it's there to be seen, but mm. it's not blatantly obvious. Yeah. What blew me away, though... The compositing when they were the three Martins? Yes. Flawless. Yes. When he was trying out to be an astronaut, this is the episode that Alan Hale was on, Skipper from Gilligan's mm -hmm. Island. Uh, apparently, astronauts have to be gymnasts. 
Yeah, I know, right? It's like, I don't get this, but all right. <laughs> so he's doing the- the Pommel horse the or whatever. Pommel horse, the, the parallel bars, the whole thing, uh, the, the rings or whatever. And there are very clear points where it's like, this is Ray Walston, this is not. <laughs> because you know Ray Walston's not doing the bit on the pommel horse. <laughs> really. But they got a, a, a good enough uh, match- for the the stunt double, mm-hmm. um, they filmed it such that you rarely, if ever, I mean, maybe for a split second, see the face. But not it. It doesn't. You know, it's not like the episode of some other shows we've watched where it's like you know, you, you've got this this tall, slender guy and a, a short, chubby guy for the stunt double. Or you know, yeah, we've yeah. seen somewhere it's almost they make a point of not matching. Well, they they did a smooth job. The effects they pulled them off. Yeah, there was an episode where. Um, a little boy and his sister have moved into the neighborhood and the little boy has decided he's from Mars and he comes over and meets Tim and Uncle Martin and he's introducing himself as a Martian and stuff. Well, Tim wants to date the older sister. They go out on a picnic and Martin has come along uh, and the little boy has too, but Uncle Martin wants to be out looking for some mm-hmm. something he needs to fix the spaceship, not babysitting the little boy. Little boy ends up climbing up this really tall, practically straight up mountain face Mm -hmm. and getting stuck up there because he's scared to climb down. Okay, so Tim is scared of heights. We've established this earlier. And uh, Uncle Martin says, don't worry, I'll go home and I'll get my levitator box. I don't know why some episodes needed the levitator box and other episodes only needed the finger. That's one of my questions. I didn't see any that needed the box. You're lucky. Okay, so he rushes home. He gets the levitator box. He comes back. He sets the levitator box. And he says, now, don't worry. As long as I have this aimed at you and I'm focused on you, you're defying gravity. No problem. You can just scurry up the rock face within, like, Tim's gone maybe 10 feet up the rock face. Somebody, of course, knocks into Uncle Martin and the box gets broken. And now Tim doesn't know he's not defying gravity. But the shooting they did... For him climbing up and scurrying up this rock face, which isn't admittedly straight up, but, you know, mm-hmm. just enough of an angle. He did, believably. He's just kind of prancing up this thing like, I'm so confident because I think I'm defying gravity. He was well shot. Bill Bixby, uh, who played Tim O'Hare here, later went on to do The Magician, Courtship of Eddie's Father, uh, uh, and The Incredible Hulk, did a fantastic job in this show. Everything from the pilot on up and down, the physical comedy, the um, just I don't say the slapstick nature of it, but some of it he had to do some some pretty silly stuff. Well, we were joking earlier because I got you to watch with me the uh, Incredible Hulk episode where mm-hmm. the two were reunited, and there was a point where um. Banner's supposed to be in a trance, but he needs to sneeze. And Ray Walston uses a Mel hoop and brushes it against his nose to keep him from sneezing. Well, to me, that's a callback to my favorite Martian because of the number of times that uh, Tim had to put his finger out in midair to where Uncle Martin was allegedly standing invisibly and about to sneeze. Acting against the invisible Martian. Yeah. And there were many characters that disappeared in the course of the show. Obviously, Uncle Martin with the antenna could turn invisible. You're mentioning the kid who thought he was a Martian. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the other ones I watched had the other kid who was saying he was a Martian. 
because he was. Yes, Andromeda. Andromeda. It was uh, uh, Martin's actual nephew from Mars. Gotten there again by accident. Shows up for the one episode. Boom. Never seen again. In this series. There's the My Favorite Martians, plural, cartoon. And he was one of the stars in that. Interesting. Now, totally different voice cast for that. Mm-hmm. This was one of the many shows done by a Filmation. Mm. And Jonathan Harris, who played Dr. Smith on uh, Lost in Space, mm-hmm. plays Uncle Martin. Mm. And I forget who did the voices for the other, but Andromeda is one of the, the main characters there. But they had introduced that character in the third season, pretty late into it, with the potential of, okay, if, if Ray Walston wants to take a little time off, wants to kind of pull back or whatever, let's have Andy, you know, Andromeda, another Martian. Mm-hmm. You know, the, at the beginning, they would basically have the two make it back to Mars, Andy come back to learn what it's like to be human, whatever, with Ray Walston checking in periodically, yeah. you know, and kind of change up the dynamic. I guess at that point, Tim would in theory be the uncle or the cousin, you know, whatever. Yeah. NBC said, no, not going to go that way. I think they shopped it around to one or two other networks. but CBS. CBS. But they opted not to go yeah. for a fourth season. And I kind of agree with that because yeah. the show is those two characters, uh, Tim and, and Martin. Yeah. And I get Ray Walston wanting to, to maybe pull back or maybe not being thrilled with the direction some of the, the stories were going. Because there does come a point where how many times has he got to find that rare thing to cure an affliction he's got, fix his spaceship, miss that rocket to Mars, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. And when they do the the time travel stuff and whatnot, there comes to a point where it's cliche, wacky, whatever. Well, and there were quite a few episodes, especially early on, where he wanted to financially contribute mm-hmm. to the bills of the apartment. Um, my nephew, the artist, was a hilarious episode. Uh, not he, one of the ones I watched. Okay. Yeah, he did a painting in the style of oh, Van Gogh. I remember the the description of that. Basically, he's a master painter, and therefore could be used as forging and stuff. Yeah. Well, and you know the painting sells, and then he has a whole bunch more paintings that sell. But oh wait, he can't be interviewed by the press. A critic can't get too interested in him, so he admits that he was trying to uh, steal his nephew's thunder, basically, mm-hmm. and that it was really Tim who's the great artist. So now poor Tim is on the spot, and he's like, "I can't paint." And Martin says, "Oh, don't worry, I'll just use the finger, and you'll do this great." painting demonstration there's a bit of the the lucy and ethel aspect definitely where these two are going going down the charade shenanigans whatever that are are obviously much more far-fetched than you would get on an i love lucy episode but in the same kind of vein well and the acting that bill bixby does when the paintbrush is being controlled allegedly by uncle martin is hilarious Again, he did a terrific job on this, which is a sitcom, but there's aspects of dramatic acting from both of these guys. And there's also aspects of, again, the the sheer sitcom, Mm -hmm. you know, flights of fancy and stuff. I mean, the opening shot of the series is Bill Bixby in bed, alarm clock goes off, he slaps it. Another alarm clock goes off. It's in a birdcage, so he's got to work a little harder. He's about to go back to bed. Another alarm clock goes off. And just the... Again, the slapstick nature, the comedic mm-hmm. nature of that. Well, the fact that his boss knows to call his landlady because the phone is off the hook. Yeah. And send her upstairs to knock on the door. 
you know, um, one of the things I read was that they had envisioned a uh, older widow lady mm-hmm. for the landlady. And when Pamela Burton came in to audition, she said, no, you want someone younger like me. I can be more interesting. I can be more fun. I can open up more doors to you than someone 30 years older than me. You and more- she was the other main character of the series. Definitely. And she was fantastic. Well, in one of the ones, uh, Martin gets uh, hurt, taken to the hospital. Oh, we can't let him find out he's a Martian, whatever. And she's like, oh, yes, I'm covered for, for this, that. and All the C's. All the C's. Uh, you know, concussion, contusion, you know, whatever. <laughs> yes. And this is one of the many times he's chasing time to, you know, he's got a limited time to get on the rocket to get across to, to Mars. Yes. Uh, or actually, Mars is close enough. That yes. he could get with his ship or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. She was she was great. Uh, one of the guys, I mean, part of the fun of this is 1963. Mm. Totally different crop of actors for guest stars and stuff than we get today, obviously. Very true. And we mentioned Alan Hale, who went on to be the skipper of, of Gilligan's Island. Um, one who was in three episodes, I only saw two of them, though, was Bernie Capel. You know... I mean, don't get me wrong. I loved him on the love boat. I thought he was great as the doctor there, but I'd always heard he felt he got pigeonholed and was underrated as an actor because of the love boat. Now I understand why that was said. Well, I totally get it because on the love boat as Dr. Adam Bricker or whatever, eh, he was okay. Mm-hmm. You know, nothing great. He was a very bland kind of a character. He was very believable as the character he was written to be. Yes. Okay, fine. In one of the two episodes I watched that he was in, he was the Mexican cab driver, mm-hmm. the hotel owner, mm-hmm. the restaurant owner, and the mayor. Yes. Small yes. town. Well, and I loved that uh, when he was the restaurant owner slash chef, and uh, he made something with peppers that was too hot, and he had to come out with the water to squirt straight into Tim's mouth, they would tease him he could also be the fire brigade. Mm. You know, but that was one where he was doing that Hispanic ask accent on the English so well that I did a double take. I'm like, no, wait, I, I know that actor. was well known for being able to do that. He played uh, Latino heavies quite a bit. Uh, you know, he just, again, very uh, popular character actor and stuff in that regard. He was also on Get Smart mm. and a couple others, mm-hmm. uh, again, in various accents. So it was one of those that I see him there, and it's like I knew he was going to be in a couple of these. And he, even with the, you know, uh, dark hair and the mustache, whatever, it's like, oh, that's that's Bernie Cabell from The Love Boat. Very recognizable. Very proud of yeah. himself. Episode or two later that I'm watching was the one where Martin had accidentally uh, pulled down a, a foreign spaceship, a, a Earth-based one, had to mind-wipe the pilot, whatever, to, you know cover his mistakes uh and the uh, uh landlady's nephew george mm-hmm. is there mm-hmm. he's a psychiatrist or you know whatever he's basically gonna hypnotize or try to get her memory back because oh it's fascinating it's bernie capel mm-hmm. i did not recognize him at all he just blended right into that role it was the voice again for me and several times while i was watching the voices i would be watching i'd be like Wait a second. That voice. That's MacGyver's grandfather. There are a lot of actors that you may see 
decades later. They may have done a voice in a cartoon that, again, we would have watched incessantly as kids or something. Mm-hmm. And it was, to me, just amazing how uh, rich the, the, the guest cast was. Yeah. How they never really stole the limelight from the main cast. Now, again, Bill Bixby, Ray Walston, hard to steal yeah. their thunder. Um, and how neither one really overshadowed the other. Again, they were a good comedy team in that respect. But it was also one where, because Bill Bixby was playing just a regular human newspaper reporter, it didn't really typecast him. Mm-hmm. Whereas Ray Walston playing The Martian, who's the more eccentric, the more mm-hmm. you know visibly different of, of the two, it really, I think, did great things and horrible things to his career. I mean, it rocketed him up to the stratosphere. He was a very, you know, recognizable character. But that's really hard from for an actor to come back from. I wonder if he went back to Broadway because that's where I'm he came from. He did. He did Damn Yankees and a couple other things after that. Yeah. But you look at character. You look at actors who have played superstar characters, breakout characters. Mm-hmm. You look at Ray Walston here for My Favorite Martian. You look at uh, Robin Williams with Mark and Mindy. Yeah. Just sticking with the theme, you look at <laughs> Leonard Nimoy for Spock. Yes. You know, there are a couple of these that it's hard for the actor who becomes so associated with that character to kind of break away from that and become known as some other character. Yeah. Henry Winkler, the Fonz on, on Happy Days. True. There are certain ones that it took decades for those actors to really be able to kind of get back in as something else. And even then, usually not on weekly television. Well, I didn't think to uh, IMDb, the actor who was in uh, one of the episodes that I suggested you add to the list of mm-hmm. ones you'd cherry picked out of season one, but um, the Russians are coming. Ah, he played Mel on uh, Dick Van Dyke show. Yeah. And I mean, I always loved the episodes where they were picking on Mel mm-hmm. because there was a, they weren't bullying him. There was just this good natured. Well, him and, and Buddy, uh, the Mel yeah. Buddy relationship on the Dick Van Dyke show gave just so many great one liners. Yeah. It was really one of the main sources of comedy yeah. for the show. And again, great actor. He was well used in the episode where they were thinking Tim and Martin were Russian spies. Yeah. And. I mean, that was one of those episodes where, like I say, I, I suggested you watch it in part because he was in it and in part because I actually sat there, watched the whole episode and then thought, you know, on the one hand, I know I loved it mm-hmm. when I was a kid. But when we first watched it, I was oblivious to the concept of McCarthyism. So now here I am as an adult rewatching it and thinking, you know, this was probably written, what, five, ten years after most of Hollywood at least witnessed, if not experienced, McCarthyism. Well, it brings up a couple of points. One, how this material is very much all ages. Yes. There's the slapstick, the the, the surface level humor and stuff like that, that young kids can really enjoy and stuff. And as an adult, we can still enjoy. But there's also a deeper level of story, of characterization, of material that as an adult, I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest, before I started watching, rewatching these things the last couple of days, it had been eons since I'd seen this stuff. It must have been in reruns, you know, back decades ago. I was a little concerned that it's like, geez, you know, I've found about a dozen I want to watch, but is it going to be kind of, you know, uh, I don't want to say heavy handed acting, but 
a very mm-hmm. projected um, kind of uh, uh, lack of subtlety sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, very slapstick, very, you know, okay, here's the laugh track. Is it going to age well? Mm-hmm. Big concern for me. But then, you know, I watched the pilot and it's just, they did such a, a, a wonderful job. It's very comedic. It's very sitcom. It is a sitcom. Yeah. But it's one that aged very well. The effects held up. The characters held up. Well, and I mean, I don't watch many current sitcoms because to me, a lot of the current sitcoms go for a crasser sense of humor. Yeah. And this, like you were saying, it's all ages. It appeals to everybody. And I like that a lot of the episodes, whether it was a knock you over the head with it or just a more subtle thing. There's a little bit of a lesson, a little bit of a moral tucked away in there. Tim is in many ways in need of lots of morals and lessons. Yes. Because Tim O'Hara is a flawed individual. And he's lucky to have his Uncle Martin. And he knows He's it. also unlucky to have his Uncle Martin at times, too. <laughs> well, there is that. And he that. knows that. Yes. But the number of times he <laughs> accidentally or purposefully uses some of Martin's stuff. Yes. To, and winds up in, in such deep trouble. Well, in, at the very end of the pilot, um, Uncle Martin suggests they could go to Vegas. Yes. And that never happens. And there was a talk on one of the web pages I looked at of basically a, the writers considered actually writing a script where they go to Vegas. But how do you do an all ages episode where you go to Vegas, you have no showgirls, and you don't cheat? But Uncle Martin is somehow ensuring you get the money you need. They Clearly, the implication to me was that they would be cheating left, right, and center. Yeah. They'd so, be playing poker, reading the other person's mind. They would be going to the, the craps table and fiddling with the dice. Yeah. So they decided that, no, Tim and Uncle Martin would think better of this because they're better people. They wouldn't cheat, etc. So Vegas is off the table. They wouldn't cheat. They're better people. How many times did Tim <laughs> use one of the devices to get what? the story? Uh, okay. He but, used the mind but, reading to go interview the, the politician. He, I mean. But this is financially immediate gain in Vegas. Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> you amuse me whether you mean to or not. So, um, early on, though, they realized, uh, I think they realized, that they needed to account for the fact that having a second person in the apartment mm-hmm. means more food, more money, etc. Um Tim gets sent to cover a display at a department store. And, oh, I can't. Trimble's tremendous something. It was a bunch of alliteration. And he gets there and it's got these paper mache Martians with fish lips and these one eyed Venusians. And it, it's really bad. And he writes these notes on how he's going to softball the story because he finds out in the process that Trimble is one of their number one ad buyers. Mm. And so if you write a really bad review, the newspaper's going to lose one of their biggest supporters. Yeah, the whole journalistic ethics with, with Tim. Yeah. That reminds me of the one where he, fa- well, I think it was the, the, the Russians one, where he faked the incoming letter so yes. he could write the article. Yes. Well, it gets worse. Oh, and the daughter of the owner was the one in charge of the display. Well, he gets home. Uncle Martin is sick, and he's ordered a prescription. And Mrs. Brown decides that Tim is coming down with it, too, and forces Tim to take one of the pills from the prescription. And it's a very, very heavy-dose sleeping pill. Mm. 
All right. So he conks out dead on his feet. Literally, he's standing up asleep. The phone rings and it's the editor of the paper demanding Tim's story within the hour. So being very helpful, Uncle Martin decides to write the story for him. Because that will go well. Exactly. Digs out Tim's notes and is horrified. And the whole thing unfolds from there. But by the time it gets to the end, we discover that, as we see many times after this, Uncle Martin can do people's voices. So he gets a hold of this number one ad buyer's uh, dictation machine and puts into it, write a letter to the newspaper. I want money taken out of my ad budget to double that wonderful Tim O'Hare salary. He needs a pay raise and I won't notice if the money's missing. And I'm like, well, okay, that's an interesting way to say Tim can now afford to have Uncle Martin in the apartment. Well, I mean, it's it's mainly just the more food. It's not like the rent went up or something. True. But it's also a matter of there are a lot of times that Tim is basically holding that over Martin's head of, I'm paying for the food, I'm paying for all this equipment you need to fix your ship and build all these devices and such. It's it's an interesting give and take that they've got. Because and, it's not like Martin's freeloading. Well, and Uncle Martin spends three years on the couch. Yes. Although when Andromeda shows up, they have a fold-out chair for yeah. that one week. But again, it's... Uh, it, it had to seem like a crowded apartment at times for those two. Oh, what cracked me up was one episode, I don't know if you saw it or not, where Tim is very upset with Martin. He's woken him up. He's trying to make him look out the window. He wants to get back in bed. And when he goes to jump back in bed, Martin uses his finger to move I did see that one. the bed out from under him. It's like, today is Saturday. Wake me up on Sunday. <laughs> yes. Well, and again, Tim is somewhere in his 20s. Yes. He's a young kid. Um uh, and I think Bill Bixby at the time was a little under 30 and Mary Wollstone a little under 50, I think, mm-hmm. the time these things were done. Mm-hmm. Um, so he uh, Bixby was playing a character a little younger than himself. And obviously Martin won much, much older because he'd been around for hundreds of years. 450 years. They wavered back and forth on that. Yeah, they did. But it was a show that, again, really held up. Um Getting the whole thing on DVD, I think, is is a great move. It is, and I love the special features. Um, the interviews with Ray Walston. I'm going to make noise. I'm sorry. Let's see. I uh, Because I went through most of the special features, I don't remember which ones were on which season. But the behind-the-scenes home movies that were on the season three disc, I loved them. And they're, uh, uh, I want to call them silent movies, but there was no audio track to them. They apparently came uh, in part from the studio, uh, mm-hmm. some color tests when they switched to season three and stuff, but also from uh, Bill Bixby and Pamela Britton. And the guy they got, uh, and I forget his name, I'm sorry, but the guy they got to do the narration and voiceover, fantastic. Just talking not only about who's there and giving you the basics, but he, he clearly spent a lot of time. Not just figuring out what was what, but, you know, pointing out, like, you know, uh, the stars would work five days a week together, and then they would go out to the desert and spend the weekend golfing together, because they were great friends, and telling stories. At one point, uh, there was some footage of Robert Clary from Hogan's Heroes, just strolling around along by a hotel, and he said, oh yeah, that was the day before Hogan's Heroes debuted, mm. and they'd run into him. But the fact that they left that in and put that there yeah. was pretty cool. And in one of the episodes that 
I watched, I think you watched also the finale. Um, Colonel Burkhauser on Hogan's Heroes. Uh, the bad guy, Colonel for the Nazis. We always saw. Clank? No, the Colonel, not. The- oh, the Colonel. Uh, um, but anyways, he was pure minuet. So going back to lots of recognizable guest stars oh, the one for me. I know nothing. No, that's uh, Schultz. Schultz. The colonel who came to visit the camp periodically and kept threatening to demote Clank. So um, they also had interviews I didn't have a chance to watch yet of Let's Talk to Lucy, uh, long lost 1964 and 65 radio shows where Lucille Ball interviews Bill Bixby and Ray Walston. Mm. That's on my, I still won't watch, but I ran out of time list. Um on season two, the behind the scenes stuff, the vintage cast interviews with Ray Walston were fantastic. And then on the season one one, they had um now this one's kind of a pro and a con. They had twenty four track soundtrack, which I love, but it's on the DVD. So it's not like I can listen to it in the car, in other words. Yeah. So, so. finding a way to get that off onto like your iPod or something would be handy. Yeah. But that's the only downside to it. Other than that, I love having an hour of the My Favorite Martian music from the various season one episodes. It was a good soundtrack. It never was overpowering. It was never kind of, you've got to be kidding me at this point. Mm-hmm. It, it, it really added to the show in a kind of almost invisible way. And that's that's an art for a soundtrack. It is. It is. And it's another one of those theme songs that the moment you hear it, you know what it is. Yeah. Kind of that Morris Code kind of bit at the beginning, and yeah, the the whole sound uh, theme song or whatever was classic. Well, and uh, I had it going back to the main menu between episodes, so that if I needed to run out of the room to do anything, or and because I wanted to see how long each mm-hmm. episode was, and that was the only way I could do it. Um, and the episodes were averaging twenty five minutes and about twenty two seconds, give or take. Uh, but the funny thing to me was. It would go back to the main menu. I'd go to the other room to grab a snack or something. And the main menu had the opening theme song playing repetitively. Mm-hmm. And I realized I kept trying to rush back because I thought that the opening oh, credits were the playing. Next episode was going. <laughs> I realized, wow, it really does call me from the other room. So, yeah. One of the things I thought they did a pretty good job of was having kind of that opening teaser that's basically here's the jam they're going to get into this episode. Mm. Then you get the opening, and then it's, okay, here we are. Yeah. You know, it's, you're not really going to use that time machine for that. Oh, I guess you are. You yeah. Know? Well, season one had quite a bit of talking to animals, talking with animals, working with animals, mostly dogs. And i kind of forgotten that. I only watched a couple from the first season. The The episodes I watched... And the way I picked these is I just went through the descriptions and looked for what looked interesting. Mm-hmm. Went with the pilot because that set everything up. Mm-hmm. Went for the awful truth, which is when uh, Martin gives Tim the power of, of mind reading. Yeah, now see, that's just dangerous. Absolutely. Well, and that episode intrigued me because Martin agreed to give him a power for 24 hours. So it started with levitation. Yeah. And switched to yes. mind reading. It was levitation, and then the next day he got the, the mind reading. Yeah. But then the RX for a Martian, where uh, they basically got to convince a hospital is <laughs> not dead. Well, and I never was quite sure what they were hearing through the stethoscope. 
when they listened to his heart because it almost sounded like the inner workings of a cuckoo clock. I yeah, th- at one point Uncle Martin was like, "I need you to get this, this, and that." You know, uh, you know, a, a stopwatch. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but it comes, you know, he's a genius. See, an old, old friend of the family, where he's basically getting a exclusive interview for Tim based on having been, uh, you know, a legendary figure in this Middle Eastern country or wherever it was. Yeah, you know. generations back well and that brings up the interesting point of this is the phase of television where we didn't use the names of other real countries yes because this was uh yeah from kobima yeah he was the legendary kokoban and again there's a certain you know ludicrousness of some of the names and then uh see uh the disaster knots where he basically tries out or becomes an astronaut and would have made it if he'd stayed on the damn rocket yes uh and that was the one that had um alan hale who went on to be the skipper Mm -hmm. on gilgan's island those were the only ones i no, i take it back i also watched the uh the the russian one yeah the russians are coming which was the fourth episode season two three to make ready where he splits into three people um el senor from mars that's the one that had bernie capel um and where he's trying to basically get there and destroy an artifact that's in this this time capsule that was done. Yes. Lest they find out it's him. Yes. Now I'm thinking small Russian or small uh, Mexican town. They've got a stone carving. Unless they see him modern day, they wouldn't put two and two together. <laughs> so what's he do? He goes right there. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, time out for Martin, which is the introduction of. Actually, no, it's not the introduction. They introduced it early in season two of the CCTBS. The cathode ray centrifugal time brachoscope. Uh, and this is again, no, I guess uh, this is where they introduce it. There was a three-parter maybe that was at the beginning of the third season where they travel back a couple uh, of times. The Once one. they get the brachoscope, they, it's it's part of the, the machinery of the show. Mm. And then third season, Girl in the Flying Machine, that was Zelda's ship. Again, that's where Bernie Capel comes back. The O'Hara caper, again, the CCTBS uh, where he relives his lunch hour and Gets accused of theft. Uh, and then when you get back to bars, are you going to get it where they introduce Andy and then pay the man the $24, uh, which is again where he, where they start out with Tim having, getting back from a, a research trip for his novel and unselling uh, Manhattan. <laughs> I love the puff of smoke when they time travel. I thought that was something that, well, not just with the time travel, when Martin splits in three. Yes. A lot of Martian devices involve an explosive activation, and it was something that in the uh, Incredible Hulk mm. uh, episode, when we first see Ray Walston walk in, he's doing the magician poof, you know, appear in a puff of smoke kind of a thing. That's a good point. That I thought was a bit of a callback. I mean, the Bill Bixby and Ray Walston worked beautifully together. They did. And- you know, both went on to have very illustrious careers. Mm-hmm. You know, I think Ray Walston, if he had been almost any other character, mm. instead of this, he would have, but equally, he would have been equally successful, but not as pigeonholed. Yeah. Well, it's funny because a lot of people I know, if you ask them when it comes to Star Trek, the next generation Voyager, who was your all-time favorite? They came in guest starring. It was more than a cameo, but not a lot more. Who's your favorite? They say Boothby. 
Yeah, Boothby was a, an interesting character. Emery Walston did a, a fantastic job. And it was nice for that franchise to kind of acknowledge um, the, mm-hmm. you know, his role in, in sci-fi history. Um, I would love to see somebody edit together kind of a, a crossover between Uncle Martin, Mork, I'm trying to think some of the other kind of standout, you know, mm-hmm. uh, comedic uh, aliens and whatnot. Because, again, it was uh, a well-loved, well-respected show. If they had been a little tighter on some of the writing and, and a little more focused on the, the premise of the show, yeah, I think they usually could have kept it going another couple of years. Yeah. But I think the show they made, the show they sold and the show they were going to make after that, clearly- People had gotten out of alignment. Yeah. Sherwood Schwartz kind of got that back, but it drifted. Well, and by season three, the landlady was dating the cop. And I think that changed the dynamic quite a bit. Well, because that cop was very hostile. Yeah. And in an almost aggressive manner, whereas that slot was kind of filled by the editor in previous seasons. Yeah. And the editor was fun. Yes. His own... Kind of strange way. He was fun. He was kind of the Perry Wyatt, J. Jonah Jameson for for Tim O'Hara. Yeah. Again, classic show. Made the shift from black and white to color. Yeah. uh, Very well. I I was trying to remember, well, first of all, other shows that did that. But then I was teasing our parents. I had forgotten how many of my favorite childhood memories are in black and white. Well, because when we were growing up, well, we had a, a color TV in the house. So many of the shows, while the new ones were being filmed to color, they were still rerunning black and white reruns. Yeah. You know? I love Lucy, Dick Van Dyke. I mean, we grew up on so many of these great black and white shows. And I think if kids today aren't seeing them, that's a shame. It's funny because I think that transition to color 65, 66, if it had happened even like two years, three years later, Star Trek would have been in black and white. Oh, a strange thought. Yeah, I can't imagine that. It's just, that's, because I remember, again, the shift to color and stuff as if it was happening in my childhood, mm. based on, again, when we got a color TV. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, they were they were not cheap at the time. This would yeah. have been, you know, 70s. Yeah. And, frankly, until there was a lot of content there, it's uh, black and white color. Well, and the early color TVs were considered to be unsafe if you were within a certain distance while they were turned on. Mm-hmm. You know, especially for children. So, well, because kids of that era, I speak as an expert, as one of them, <laughs> would would sit, you know, right up in front of the TV, less than a foot away. I mean, <laughs> it was a different era of television back then. Because literally, you'd get up at the crack of dawn on a Saturday to go watch your cartoons. Many of which, my favorite Martians, Gilligan's Planet, things of that, were cartoon continuations, adaptations. Of beloved shows from previous yeah. seasons. Yeah. And, you know, this is great fun. I, I really enjoyed this this uh, complete set of the of My Favorite Martian. And I'm curious if somebody's going to be able to do uh, a DVD set for the cartoon. Mm, agreed. Now, I have to admit, I haven't seen the, uh, the movie. I have not either. Uh, Christopher Lloyd stars. And I'm blanking on who plays Tim O'Hara. I have no idea. He was in Dumb and Dumber, and he wasn't Jim Carrey. <laughs> so helpful. Somebody listening is is shouting the name right now. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I can't hear you shout louder. <laughs> That's one that I may pick up at some point. We may go over. Yeah. 
But I mean, to me, this was just a classic TV show. Uh, again, I'm, I'm glad we got the, uh, the DVD set. This was sent to us, um, as, uh, for review. Uh, purposes and stuff by the company much appreciated yeah um very much appreciated because i believe it's about an 85 dollar set brand new yeah i think it's i thought i saw it maybe 70 at amazon or whatever but it's it's one of those that it's you know quite a few bucks but yeah for 107 episodes and stuff it's not overpriced at all it's very reasonable um and again i Jeff Daniels? Jeff Daniels, that's who I was thinking. Thank you. Thank Google, not me. Um, yeah, I believe you can get it you know, on sale. Watch for it on sale is always my advice when it's got this much content. Well, and the material, like I said, really holds up. It does. I mean, it's it cracks me up. On the back of the box, it says plus or minus 50 hours. And I was trying to watch as much as I could before we podcasted and i made it through a f- the majority of season one before i said okay i got cherry pick yeah um but each season is 17 and a half 18 hours you know um and like i said i love the uh the add-on footage the bonuses i think it's fantastic somebody did a great job putting this together well a great job on the on the dvd set and again for uh, the time period, the effects were outstanding. Yeah. And not just, again, for the time period. I mean, they hold up. Yeah. I mean, there's, like other shows of its ilk, uh, Bewitched, I Dream of Genie and stuff, it's a clear, okay, they stopped the camera, the guy got out of the way, that kind of stuff. But like when the antenna would go up and, and various things of that sort, they and do it well. Ray Walston explains how the antennas went up in an interview with uh, Merv Griffin. Merv, yeah, Merv Griffin. On one of the interviews. Cool. So... Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. Of course, the other people who are on the couch are going, no, no, really. What are you trying to describe? Because <laughs> they can't visualize. Because he's explaining a harness and uh, something in his hand to trigger it because he had complete control of the antennae. That's interesting. These yeah. days it would be somebody else. Yeah. On the one hand, I could see them trying to do a remake of the show. On the other hand, I don't think they should. Yeah. Because getting a cast that's anywhere near the equal of, of Bill Bixby and Ray Walston would be tough well and in a lot of ways i think uh, bill bixby had the harder part kind of being the straight man at times that's funny because i would have said ray walston was the straight man because bill bixby is often doing the pantomiming the charades the acting without the thing doing the stuff that that's just ridiculous on the face of it but i think that's part of what makes the show work mm-hmm. is they can both kind of play that straight man to the other yeah and Again, there's a good give and a take between those two. There's just so many times where Bill Bixby is having to either react or, more importantly, not react to what Uncle Martin is doing. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there's the episode, I don't think you watched it, um, Gavin McLeod. I didn't see any of the ones that had him. Okay, he comes in as uh, Mrs. Brown's brother. And uh, long story made short, they're, they're captured by bad guys. And they're all tied up. And... Uh, he's convinced uh, everybody that he and Uncle Martin have invented something for the government. And Uncle Martin, in order to make a distraction so they can get away, says, well, nobody was looking. I released my hallucinogenic gas. And Tim's like, huh? Well, I have to have some way to explain what they're about to see. Mm-hmm. And he starts, you know, doing the finger right. and levitating and all this stuff. And Bill Bixby at times has to react to what he's seeing or not react in this case because 
everybody else is supposed to be hallucinating it. So he's supposed to not be seeing it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that's kind of weird. <laughs> I mean... It is, but it's also fun how the characters play well off each other, because they can do those kinds of things mm-hmm. where the one picks up the cue, oh, I need to be doing this. Yes, yes. And the, just again, the the, the crazy uh, extents they've got to go to make somebody believe he's he's a Martian, he's not a Martian, this is happening, this isn't happening. Mm-hmm. Um, all with a, a, a thread of, of plot logic going through it. Yes. You know. Well, and the number of times that, especially uh, Tim, has to, in this case, Bill Bixby as the actor, has to believably act like he has no idea either what's going on or what's coming next. But you know full well he's read the script. Well, which is funny because his character, Tim, anytime he knows what's coming is usually pretty arrogant about it. Yes. It's something that Martin really chastises him for. It's like, of course I kept you in the dark. Otherwise, you would have given up the game. Yeah. There's there's a con artist aspect to the show at times that's fun. Yeah. So, again, well worth uh, checking out. Definitely. If you're a fan of the show, uh, again, I think uh, this is a great collection to pick up. If you're unfamiliar with the show, mm. uh, check it out. It's on uh, Hulu. might be on Netflix. Check an episode or two out, but- it's not on Netflix. Okay. I looked. It's only on Hulu. Um, I didn't think to look on Amazon. But yeah, check an episode or two and, you know, see if it's your sense of humor. And worth. Um, they describe it as being very sarcastic. Yeah. Uh, and again, it's a science-based variant, if you will, of Bewitched or I Dream of Genie type shows. Um, but find out if it's your cup of tea. If it is, pick up the DVD set. Definitely. I mean, as great as some of these streaming services are, they have things cycle in and out. Yeah. So, you know, if it's something you want to add to your collection, I, I am glad it's in mine. Definitely. Anything else? Does that do it? That does it. Cool. The show notes and form for this podcast can be found at www.comicbookpage.com under the podcast and forum sections of the website. Please email us at theguys at comicbookpage.com and let us know what you think of what was discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening.